Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. While you're turning there, uh, I'm going to tell you a little story to kind of set up this sermon this morning. Uh, I love my kids to death. I would do anything for my kids. I love them. I know that they love me. But more than they love me, they love mama. Okay? If you're a dad, you know this feeling. You know your kids love you, but at the end of the day, they're going to prefer mama. If they're not feeling well, or they've had a bad dream, or something's going on, they don't want me, they want mom. They'll tell me that they love me, but if Katie and I were both drowning and they had one lifesaver, they would throw it to mama. That's where it is at the end of the day. So to circumvent that process, what I have to do is I have to win them over with candy, okay? Because they're three and five. So what I do is when Katie goes to the store, I say to the kids, hey guys, do y'all want to go get some candy? And they say, yeah. And then I say, fun dad, fun dad. And they start pumping their little arms, fun dad. We're all chanting it, fun dad. And it is my way to cause these party divisions within a family that is meant to be united and to try to win them over. Because these Corinthians are saying, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos. And my kids say, I'm of mama. And so I'm trying to change that so that, 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 that I get exalted. So that they align themselves, not with the family, not with unity, but with me. And we're going to see that the same thing is going on here at Corinth. Although it is less sweet, pun intended, and less funny. Okay? So let's pray. And then we're going to get into verse 10. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you are great and that we are not and that we need your help. We thank you that though it seems like the world is burning down around us, your kingdom has no end, and for us, everything is okay. We have already eschatologically won the battle. So would you be with us? Would you encourage us? Would you send the Spirit that he might enlighten our hearts and open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's look here at verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Let's look at that first phrase there. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is now where we're getting into the actual letter of 1 Corinthians. We've been in the letter of 1 Corinthians, but we've been in the introduction. Today, we're gonna get into the body of the letter, and the Apostle Paul is going to appeal to these believers in Corinth. Now, when he says, I appeal to you, that does not mean it's a suggestion. Okay, we use that kind of language. Paul could just say, I'm an apostle, do what I say, I command you to do it. But the reason that Paul doesn't do that is because Paul is a good pastor. You see, a good leader doesn't just dictate commands. A good leader wants to appeal to you. He wants to win you over. Now, it can't just be that he's just appealing because he says, by our Lord Jesus Christ. He does have some backing and some authority to it, but he's trying to lovingly get the Corinthians to see all the things that they're doing wrong. I'll give you a little example. I got a chance to do some theological study at a British university, and I don't know if you know this or not, but the British don't speak the same English that we do, okay? They don't use great words like y'all and that kind of stuff. Their sound's a little bit funny. And they're a subdued people. They're a people that are very euphemistic. They're very reserved. And so we just say it, all right? We're very emotional. They're very reserved. And so as this professor was critiquing my paper, he would say things like, "Mm, I don't love what you did here in the third paragraph. And I think that means he must like it. He doesn't love it, but he must like it. Here's what that actually means. Zach, go punch yourself in the face. Take this paper, burn it, take the ashes and mix them in water so you can taste how stupid you are when you drink it. That's what he means by I don't love it. But he's subdued, right? Because that's how the British do things. You see, in America, we're more aggressive. They do, you know, tea, we do what? Coffee, right? It's stronger, 
It's more caffeinated. They do scotch. We do bourbon. They do cricket. We do baseball. They do losing revolutionary wars. We do winning them. We're a more, we're a more aggressive people. So as he's like, okay, Zach, here on page nine, this argument doesn't really make sense. And I think, well, that must be a smart argument if it doesn't even make sense to you. And what he means is, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why are we talking to each other? That's how the Apostle Paul is using this term appeal. He is saying, brothers, I appeal to you, but that doesn't just mean it's optional. Behind this velvet glove is a, uh, an iron fist. He does this elsewhere. Philemon, eight through nine, when he's writing to Philemon to encourage him to release his slave Onesimus, he says this, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. So he's trying to win them over using the gospel, despite the fact that he does have the authority to just command them because he is an apostle. Now, why does Paul call them brothers? The simple reason is because these Corinthians are causing disunity in the family, and he's trying to remind them we are a family. He'll actually use the term brothers twice today and many times throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. Let's look at the next phrase here. What does he appeal to them to do? That all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment, okay? Now, let me clarify this because this this command to unity in all things happens within a context. Paul is not saying that we are to have unity on absolutely everything. He is not saying, truth if possible, unity at all costs. He's saying unity if possible, truth at all costs. Let me say it another way. Unity is only good as long, as long as you're gathered around the right thing. To be unified around an evil thing is called being Nazi Germany, okay? You do, unity in and of itself is neutral. You can unify around something that's good or you can unify around something that's bad. Unity in and of itself, though, is not always good. It's only good if you're unified around the right thing. So he's not commanding unity at all cost. How do we know? Because later on in the book of 1 Corinthians, he's gonna excommunicate someone from the church. He's gonna say, you should not have unity on this thing. So unity is good, but it's a silver medal. The gold medal is truth. We shouldn't have disunity on things that don't matter. We shouldn't have disunity on the, the kind that's going on here in 1 Corinthians 1. This is not a command to absolute uniformity in everything. So what should they have unity about? What they should do is lay down their preferences of following whatever pop celebrity pastor they most like. That's what this text is doing. He's not saying be unified in everything, even at the expense of doctrine. He's saying on things that don't matter, like you attaching to yourself to your favorite boy, your favorite preacher, whoever you think that is, that has to go away. It's one of the reasons here at Parkway that we have multiple preachers. Not only does it give us more time to prepare for lessons, but we don't want you following one particular figure other than Christ. And so when I preach, some of you may not like that because I'm very aggressive, okay? When Tim preaches, some of you may not like that because you can't see him when he stands behind the music stand (laughs) because he's like three foot six. When when, uh, Jared preaches, maybe you don't like that. Maybe you think he's too lust-provoking because of his beauty and his blonde hair and his blue eyes. It's like a warrior angel. Whoever your favorite is or whoever's not your favorite, we do that intentionally so that you say, I'm not here for this pastor or even for this church. You're here for Christ. You judge a sermon not based on the speaker, but it's accuracy rather to the biblical text. Division happens in Corinth for the same reason that it happens today, because of pride, because of jealousy, and because of selfishness. You see, pride is so interwoven into our sinful human hearts that we even boast about Christian things, which is insane to me. You'll hear people in church talk about, I've led so many Bible studies. I've spoken at so many conferences. 
I helped write whatever curricula. I want to be known as somebody in the church. And I think, this is a religion that teaches humility. What have you missed? What have you missed? That's what Paul is addressing. What the Corinthians are doing is they're attaching themselves to someone in the church so that they can exalt themselves over other Christians. That's exactly what they're doing, and that's the kind of thing that Paul is rebuking. Verses 11 through 13. Let's see what, exactly what they're saying. <clears throat> For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Oh, Chloe, that tattletale. Chloe's people, that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Now, a few things here. Let's talk about these figures. First of all, Chloe. We don't know who Chloe is, okay? We don't know hardly anything about her. Most likely, she had some associates, some people that she knew that were traveling from Corinth back to Ephesus because Paul's writing this book while he's in Ephesus. And somehow, after they had visited the church at Corinth, they realized this church is crazy. They're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And somehow, that information had made its way to the Apostle Paul. That's all we know. Paul's heard about the bad stuff in Corinth secondhand by these people that are associates of some lady named Chloe, okay? But that's as far as you can go with it. There are pastors that say, see, a woman's mentioned in the New Testament. She must be an elder despite the hundred other passages that say that she can't be one. That is called an argument from silence and it is bad logic, okay? Next, these Corinthians, they're attaching themselves to certain teachers, okay? So what, what, what this means is this. There's a group at Corinth that's saying, though we're all Christians, I'm a varsity Christian. Do you know why? Because I was baptized by Paul. I'm a Paul guy. He's got Paul's face tattooed on his chest because Paul says we're not under the law and they love Paul. Paul's their guy, okay? And then there are other Christians at Corinth that say, no, 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 no. I'm more woke than you are. I've attached myself to the great rhetorician Apollos. Remember, these are Greek people. The Greeks love rhetoric. They love philosophy. They love eloquence. They love public speaking. So they're saying, though we're all Christians, I'm a super Christian. I'm more Christian than you. I'm better than you. And you need to see it because I belong to Apollos. After all, doesn't the Bible say this about Apollos? Acts 18, 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an what? An eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He hits on that cylinder of the uh, Greek love of rhetoric and wisdom. And then there's another group at to Corinth that says, no, 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 you guys are junior varsity. I belong to Cephas. Who is Cephas? That is the apostle Peter, okay? So the apostle Peter, his name in Greek is Petros. It means rock. That's what he would have been called in the Greco-Roman, in a Greco-Roman setting. His Aramaic name, which is what they would have spoken in Palestine, is Kepha, and it also means rock. So Cephas is Kepha, is rock. Peter is Petros, is rock. Same guy, it's just the apostle Peter. And what they're saying is, though we're all Christians, I align myself with the thinker Peter. After all, Jesus gave him the keys to the kingdom. In a sense, you could say the Roman Catholic Church today says, I'm of Cephas. They have this primacy of Peter. And so there's a group at the church that's doing that. And Paul is rebuking it. Now, the next part here gets a little bit tricky because there's also a group saying what? I'm of Christ. Now, wait a second. That seems like the one you should say. Why does Paul include this one in the same list? Why didn't Paul say, some of you are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. We should all be of Christ. Instead, he uses this as a particular party, a particular schism. The word divisions, by the way, in Greek here is schismata. A particular divisions where they're tearing Christ's bride apart. And some people are saying, I'm of Christ. What on earth does that mean? Well, there's about five or six scholarly interpretations. I'm gonna give you the best two, and I think the second one is right. 
What some scholars think that Paul is doing here is he's doing this as a rhetorical effect. After all, the Greeks love rhetoric. He throws in one of these things that is not like the other. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. That way when they're reading it, they go, oh my gosh, I realize what Paul just did here. Paul just a guy, Apollos just a guy, Cephas just a guy, Christ the eternal son of God who became man to die for us and it was resurrected and that's who we worship. That doesn't fit with the others. That's what some scholars think that Paul's doing. I think that's a smart interpretation. I don't think that's the one that is probably most likely. What most likely is happening when Paul says that there's a group saying, I'm of Christ, is not that they're identifying as Christians. We're supposed to identify with Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, a little Christ. What's probably happening is that there's a group at Corinth that's saying, though you guys are all claiming to know Christ, I'm the only one that really knows him truly. Though you're all claiming to be Christians, I have this secret knowledge, I have this secret access to who Jesus really is. And that might be why they're questioning the Apostle Paul's authority. You see, if you think you just have a direct line to Jesus and you don't need the Bible and you don't need the apostles and you don't need church history and you don't need the community of faith, well then you can say, who is Paul? He's just some guy, I follow Christ. So they're not saying that in a good way, like we would affirm, I follow Christ. They're trying to say, unlike you other Christians at Corinth, I'm the only one who really knows Christ. You see this today with certain people who speak in tongues and they think that they are varsity Christians and they have something that you don't have. You're just junior, you're B team. You're just junior varsity. You see this with every cult that's ever arisen in Christianity where they're the ones that claim we're the only ones that really know Jesus. Not all you other denominations that follow what the apostles have taught for the last 2000 years, but our new weird group or whatever, okay? That's probably what Paul is having to shoot down in this text. Now, Let's talk about what the text is not saying, and let's talk about how we apply it today, okay? First of all, the text is not saying that you cannot use somebody's name as a way to define your theological position. I've heard pastors get up there and say, don't say I'm of Calvin, or I'm of Luther, or I'm of Arminius. We'll just be of Christ. Mm, that sounds so squishy and so unified. Until I say to that pastor, which Christ? The Christ of Pelagius? The Christ of Arius? The Christ of Augustine, which Christ are we being? Or which Christ are we following? You see, there's nothing wrong with using those terms. I'm an Orthodox, historic Christian first, a Creedalist second, an Augustinian third, a Protestant fourth, Reformed fifth, Credo Baptist sixth, a guy that likes nachos seventh, whatever, in that order, okay? It's okay to take these terms to describe your position. You're not saying, in addition to Jesus, I follow Calvin. I'm saying, I follow Jesus, the end. But as soon as I do that, I have to figure out what does the Bible teach about Jesus? And these other terms are helpful ways to describe that. This text is also not saying that you can't have a pastor or teacher that you like or that you follow. That's okay. Elsewhere, Paul will say this, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, 15 through 16, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's not what the text is rebuking, okay? Let me tell you how we bring this text to today. So I'm gonna have to get, a, get up on a soapbox and this will be a little bit controversial, but I think it is the most accurate way to understand what's happening in Corinth and bring it into today. In Corinth, what the Corinthians are doing is they're trying to find a way to exalt themselves over other Christians by showing how enlightened they are, by showing how progressive they are. They're trying to find something that makes them special so they can't just find their identity in Christ. So here's how I think it plays out today. I think the Bible is rebuking this sin, identifying with a particular issue or thinker in pride as a way of separating from or exalting yourself over other Christians. Let me say that again. 
identifying with a particular issue or thinker in pride as a way of separating from or exalting yourself over other Christians. Now let me show you how that mainly plays out in our culture. The main way that Christians do this in 2021 and in 2020 isn't by just talking about their favorite celebrity pastor. It's by political and social issues that they try to use not to actually help people, but to exalt themselves and show how enlightened they are as a way to distinguish themselves from other Christians. I think that's what's happened. In 2020, you saw this type of arrogant resurgence of Gnosticism, which said, if, so in our culture, being oppressed is, 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 is social capital. The more oppressed you are, the louder voice you get. The more uh, you are of someone who doesn't have power, ironically, the more power you actually get. And so what our culture did is our culture said, find what makes you different and use that as a way to exalt yourself, that you have secret, a secret access to knowledge, you have secret access to truth, other people don't understand, you have a secret way that because of your experiences, because of your race or gender or sexual orientation, you have special access to truth that the other people in the world do not have. And for whatever reason, Christians jumped on that bandwagon. We accepted that Trojan horse into the church without any hesitation. Despite the fact that the Bible's gonna say this, Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, that's a racial distinction. Notice it doesn't say both Jew and Greek. It's neither. It's trying to get you to not focus on what makes you different from other Christians. There is neither Jew nor Greek, that's a racial distinction. There is neither slave nor free, that is an oppressor-oppressed category relation. There is no male and female, that is a gender relation, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what Christians did in 2020 is they said, I want to focus on as a way to have pride, as a way to put the spotlight on myself, what makes me different than other Christians. I'm of this particular race, so I get access to truth that you don't have. I'm of this particular gender, so I get access to truth that the rest of you Christians don't have. I'm uh, a a Christian who struggles with uh, same-sex attraction, and so when I read the scriptures, I get insights that you don't have. And for whatever reason, the church just seemed to embrace that wholesale and continues to do so. That is how this text should be applied today. You don't do that. Jesus is saying, whatever you have that separates you from other Christians, stop talking about it. Stop focusing on it. Stop making that the issue. You're not a black or white Christian, you're a Christian. You're not a rich or poor Christian, you're a Christian. You're not a male or female Christian, you're just a Christian. Stop saying, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos or I'm of Cephas. Lay down what this thing is that thinks it shows how much better you are than other Christians and have unity in Christ. That's how you apply this text today. You see this in the act of what is called virtue signaling. That's where people aren't actually helping others. They're not actually having a homeless person live in their house. They're not actually giving up their college fund to give to the poor. They might give a little money to the poor just so they can feel good, but it doesn't actually cost them. They're not selling all that they have and giving to the poor like Jesus commands. What they're doing is they're just posting something on social media to say, I'm more progressive than you. I am more enlightened than you. Whether it's somebody with a picture of them wearing a mask in their house, which by the way, we're not anti-mask at Parkway, we're pro-freedom. So if you wanna wear one, go for it. If you don't wanna wear one, that's why we don't mandate it. But if somebody's just showing a picture of them wearing it in their house, They're not actually, they're just trying to say, look how much I care. Or posting a black square on Facebook or whatever it might be, you're not actually helping people. In fact, what you're doing is you're trying to gain social capital. How brave of you to say what the rest of the world is already saying. It doesn't cost you anything. And in fact, you gain something from it. It's actually an act of selfishness. But Zach, Jesus tells us to raise social awareness. Does he? Matthew 6, 1 through 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues to tweet their righteousness before men, right? And at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Notice he doesn't say, when you give, post it on Instagram to raise awareness for giving to the poor. When you pray, post it on Twitter to raise awareness for praying. Yes, it's true that people could see the righteous things you do just out in public and glorify God. But when you're not actually doing it, you're just posting about how awesome you are you're actually just trying to gain something in selfishness. You're not actually caring about other people. And most of the people, by the way, I see do this are on the wrong side of the issue. So you can't ever raise social awareness when you're on the wrong side of the issue. To say it another way, social media is just simply large phylacteries for the 21st century. That's the way that you apply this text. What the Corinthians are doing is what you would typically do in Greek society. You would find something, a social status indicator, to exalt yourself over others, and they're doing the same thing in the church. And we do that today not by saying I'm of Paul or I'm of Cephas, but by trying to show others how we're much more enlightened than they are on some particular political or social issue. Rant over. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, by the way? In Greek, there's a way you can tell whether or not he's expecting a positive or a negative answer. We don't have that in English. He's expecting a negative answer. No, Paul was not crucified for you. In case that wasn't clear enough from the context. Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? He's saying, whoa, 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 wait a second. Don't even say you're attached to my name, which I love the humility of Paul here. Paul is saying, even though I'm an apostle, even though I'm right, even though I'm writing you this letter, don't attach yourself to my name. I'm not the guy. I'm the guy that points to the guy. Okay? I'm not the guy, I'm the guy that points, I'm just a servant. When we were kids, so I didn't become a Christian until I was about 17 or 18, but we grew up in church. And my little sister, who's nine years younger than me, we were little, so she was very little. And we're sitting in church, and the sound booth was behind us. So some people sat up in the sound booth to do the lights and the music and that kind of stuff. And in the middle of the service, she looks up, and she sees them, and she, points, she, she taps my shoulder, and she says, is that God? And I'm like, the overweight guy with glasses? who's got a mustard stain on his shirt? No, no, that's not God. That's a servant. That's not God. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I'm the servant. I'm not the guy. I'm the one who points to the guy. If you think that you're attached to me and that somehow makes you holy, you have missed the point. I'm not the one that did the saving. Martin Luther says this, the spearhead of the Reformation, when people started calling themselves Lutherans. The first thing I ask is that people should not make use of my name and should not call themselves Lutherans, but Christians. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor is I crucified for anyone. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 would not tolerate Christians calling themselves Paul's or Peter's, but only Christians. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? Not so, dear friends. Let us do away with party names and be called Christians, for it is his teaching that we have. Paul is saying the important one in salvation is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that's the important one in salvation. I did, did not die for you. I was not crucified for you, etc. Jesus is the one who lived the life you should have lived. Jesus is the one who died on a cross for your sins. Jesus is the one who's been resurrected. Jesus is the one who imparts the spirit to give eternal life, etc. That's what we should be pointing to. That has to be the focus. 
And by the way, as just an evangelistic call, there is something in the heart of man that longs for forgiveness, that longs for peace. We all know that we're guilty, even if we try to shake it. We want peace, we want happiness, we want joy. You will not find that in any other teacher other than Christ. You will not find it in Oprah. You will not find it in Ellen. You will not find it in meditation to try to get rid of the stress of lockdown. You will not find it in uh, people liking you on social media. You will not find it. You find it in Christ or you never find it. He is the one who's done the stuff so that you can be saved. And that's what Paul reminds us of. Verses 14 through 16. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. A few strange things here. First of all, it's strange for an apostle to say, I'm so glad I didn't baptize very many people, okay? Paul is not against baptism per se. It's just been abused. I'll give you an example. If every time you came into the church, I was hiding around a corner and I ran up and I hit you in the head with a Bible. Be healed in Jesus' name, something like that. And I ran up and I hit you in the head with a Bible. You might come back one more time and be looking around the corners trying to figure it out, and I hit you in the head again. Then a third time you come in, you're like, Zach, wherever you are, you better not hit me in the head with a Bible. And so I play Jaws on my phone, that sound, dun dun and I run up and I hit you in the head with the Bible. Is the solution to get rid of the Bible? No. Abuse does not negate proper use. So the problem is not the Bible, the problem is that I'm abusing it. It's the same way with baptism. The problem is not baptism, baptism is commanded, baptism is good. The problem is that they're abusing it. They're saying, because Paul baptized me, I must have a little something special. I must have a little something extra because I belong to Paul. So Paul is saying, hey, Paul's not against baptism, he's against the abuse of it. By the way, this is true with many theological things, whether it's alcohol or disciplining your kids or doing church discipline or a wife submitting to her husband, all those things can be abused, but that doesn't mean you throw out what's good just because somebody can misuse it, and the same thing is true with baptism. So he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, These are two converts. Acts 18.8 in Corinth, by the way. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Romans 16.23, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. So there we see these two guys here mentioned, Crispus and Gaius. We don't have time to do an entire theology of baptism. We have those recorded in our theological equipping classes online. Suffice it to say, here's what we're supposed to know about baptism from this text. First of all, where you got baptized does not matter. I hear people that say, I'm gonna wait and I'm gonna fly to Israel so I can get baptized in the Jordan River. And I say, how about instead of that, you just be obedient to Jesus now? Because Jesus says, that we don't worship on this mountain or this mountain, the location, but true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. The location doesn't matter. Specifically in this text, who does your baptism doesn't matter. Ideally, it would be somebody who themselves are a believer, but you don't have special magic priest powers because somebody that you like baptized you. I've heard people say that. I've been baptized by Billy Graham. I was baptized by W.A. Criswell. I was baptized by whoever. And I say, people that are baptized by Paul, Paul says, stop talking about it. Stop saying it doesn't matter. Who baptizes you doesn't matter. In fact, it doesn't even have to be clergy. There's nothing in the Bible that restricts it to clergy. In fact, as Protestants believing in the priesthood of all believers, even just a regular Christian can do that. The important person in baptism is the triune God. You see, when you get baptized, you're making promises to God to obey, to follow, to submit to the scriptures. And God is making promises to you to resurrect you, to forgive you of your sins, to give you new life. Now, what's interesting is you will break all of the promises that you've made to God in baptism, 
and he will break none of those promises that he's made to you. He is the important figure of baptism. It's not the one being baptized. They're not the center of the show. It's not the person doing the baptizing. It's God. As the early church leader, John Chrysostom would say, baptism truly is a great thing, but its greatness is not the work of the person baptizing, but of him who is invoked in the baptism. Verse 16, uh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't really know whether I baptized anyone else. I love this because it shows that Paul is literally writing a letter or dictating a letter. It's like this kind of off-the-cuff comment. And you know why he has to write this? Because you know there'll be that one guy at Corinth. Let's call him Ted. All right, if that's your name, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't know that. We all have Ted's in the church. You know who Ted is. He's the kind of guy that makes everybody late to the party because you got to stop and pick up his asthma medicine. That's Ted. He's the kind of guy where, you know, Paul will give this great defense and say, I only baptize these two guys. And he'll say, oh, wait a second, Paul. And you're like, yes, guy that looks like the only white waiter at a Chinese restaurant, what? Oh, I think you also uh, baptize these. Uh, what he's trying to do is he's just trying to cut off that person. They always have those in every church. Every church I've ever been in has a Ted and where you'll give 10 good points and they'll find one little minor thing and they're like, well, actually, and you're like, oh, not this guy, not this guy. So Paul to protect it. So he just doesn't say, I baptized Crispus and Gaius and that's it. Oh, okay. To be fair, yes, Ted, there are probably some other people I baptized. That's not my point. My point is that I didn't baptize very many people and I'm glad because they're attaching themselves to me instead of to Christ. That's what Paul is doing here with verse 16. Now, you may say, as some of my Presbyterian friends do, that it says that he baptizes the household of Stephanus. And therefore, we should just assume that that means there are all these little tiny unbelieving infants that got baptized despite the fact that's not, that's not in the text. May I draw your attention to 1 Corinthians 16, 15 when talking about the baptism of Stephanus? Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So even here where it says their household was baptized, elsewhere it says their household had faith. They were converts, Okay. If you say, look at all the infant baptism implied in this passage, at worst, that's just wrong. At best, that is called an argument from silence, which again is a logical fallacy. Silence doesn't say anything. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. When he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, again, he's not downplaying baptism. He's saying the most important thing is hearing the gospel. Saving faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What Paul would do is he'd go into a town, preach the gospel, people would get converted, they'd get regenerated, and then after he left, other people would do the baptism. That's what he's saying is his normal pattern. We have all been given different ways to serve the church. We'll see this later on in 1 Corinthians when we talk about spiritual gifts, but it's not that we all do it the exact same way. So the Great Commission, which is to go baptize and teach all that Christ has commanded us, that's not that every individual does that. It's not that every individual is a missionary. It's not that every individual baptizes. It's not that every individual teaches. Some of you should not be teachers yet, okay? Rather, it's that as the church goes forward, as the gospel goes forward, everyone has their role to play. You might do it by being a missionary. You might do it by being a housewife. You might do it by sharing the gospel with your neighbor at your job. You might do it by becoming a pastor. You might be do it by serving in our children's ministry. It's a thousand different ways. And Paul is simply saying, my job wasn't to do all these baptisms, it was to preach the gospel. Now, this next phrase here, I've gotta spend a lot of time on because there's a lot of confusion about this in the early church and then especially today with the anti-intellectualism that has crept into evangelicalism. He says, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Okay, with not with words of eloquent wisdom. Let me explain <clears throat> this a little bit so that you get a context for what would have happened at Corinth. 
in ancient Greek cities, they were run by a democracy. Don't think of a democracy today. In Greek democracies, you had to be a freed male. Okay, if you were not free or you were a woman, you were not part of that democracy. And what would happen is these guys in that democracy is they would vote on certain issues. So somebody would get up and they would have to use rhetoric. They would have to be a good speaker because they had to present their case to a group of people. And it wasn't the cancel culture that we have today. If you disagreed with somebody, you couldn't just shut them down. You had to let them speak and this is novel, actually give a good argument. You see, when you can't give a good argument and someone has a better position than you, it's easier just to shut them down. It's easier just to cancel them and not let them talk. Why would you do that if you have the best argument? If you have the best argument, let that win the room. But anyway, in ancient Greece, you would have to allow people to speak. So someone would get up and they would give this long speech on why you should support some bill. And then the opponent would get up and give some long speech on why you should not support that bill. So rhetoric and public speaking became very, very important because it determined every other part of life, okay? And there were three main parts that you had to be good at if you were going to be a rhetorician, if you were going to be a public speaker. First, there's what's called logos, which is the actual logic or the content of the argument. Can you make an argument? Can you give a proposition and support it with other propositions? Okay. The second part was what's called ethos, which is, are you an ethical person? Are you a moral person? Why is that important? Because if you're immoral, but a good speaker, you can convince people to do evil things. And the third part was pathos, emotion. You can't just get up there and read a speech, that's boring. You got to make the people laugh. You have to make the people cry. You have to make them hang on your every word. You have to use emotion, okay? So you had to use all three of these if you were a good rhetorician. What did the ancients think was the most important of those? Of logos, pathos, and ethos. The one that they thought that was the most important was ethos, morality. Because at the end of the day, if you're an evil person and you're smart, you can convince people to do evil things. They thought that was the most important. What do we in our culture today of those three think are the most important? Pathos. Oh, emotion. There's no logic. There's just typing in all caps. There's no reasoning and debate and open dialogue. It is just safe spaces and crying and emotion. That's all we care about. Which of those three should be the most important? Logos, logic, the argument. An evil person can make a good argument. A righteous person can make a stupid argument. Okay, that should be what's central. So you had to be good at these things. So what would happen is if you wanted somebody to present your case in court or to argue something before uh, you know, the people that are voting or whatever, is you would hire professional rhetoricians. But what happened is some of those rhetoricians stopped caring about truth and they just wanted to win. If you think of that kind of attorney on TV that doesn't care if his client's guilty, he just wants to win at all cost. Those are what are called the sophist. The Greek word sophia means wisdom, by the way. So what you had in ancient Greek were what were called sophists. And they were basically rhetoricians to the highest bidder. They were rhetorical, uh, you know, mercenaries that you could purchase to support your case. And eventually they got a bad name. Plato in a very famous work called Gorgias uh, gives an extended critique of the sophists. It's the most famous critique of rhetoric in world history. And he critiques them for doing just that. They don't care about truth. They just care about being eloquent and a good speaker. That's what would happen in in the ancient Greek world. So I say all that to say what Paul is saying is, When we present the gospel, it's not about who is the best speaker. It's not about who can win you over with these fancy rhetorical flourishes and all these Greek and Latin phrases and really make you hang on every word. That's a way to exalt yourself. That's a way to say, I don't care about you Christians. I'm an enlightened, educated, rhetorical Christian. Instead, we preach Christ and him crucified. Now, I need to say, this is the part that that a lot of people don't understand. Paul here, though, is not actually critiquing eloquence. He's not actually critiquing wisdom. He's not actually critiquing philosophy. He's critiquing the abuse of it, okay? 
Wisdom is good. All truth is God's truth. We should be trying to find wisdom. I'll give you an example. My son the other day, who's five, said, Dad, we have to be careful. And I said, why, buddy? Why do we have to be careful? And he said, because sometimes bad girls are really pretty. And I thought, son, you are wiser than most grown men I have talked to. We do have to be careful because sometimes bad girls are indeed very pretty. Wisdom, wherever it may be found, we want to take that wisdom, okay? So Paul is not saying by talking about eloquence, he's critiquing the sophist. He's critiquing the pride of the Corinthians that want to exalt themselves. He's not critiquing eloquence as such. I was giving a talk one time to a group of pastors out in the country on the border of Texas and Oklahoma, so very much in the country. And I was talking about the importance, not of just knowing the Bible, but of also knowing the culture around you. And an old man who's kind of an old farmer who was also a pastor raised his hand and he said, Zach, I disagree. Paul says that he just decided to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And I said, you just said that sentence to me in English, which means in addition to knowing Christ and him crucified, we'd also have to know English, right? Which I say for two reasons. One, don't challenge me in public. But two, Paul is not saying, Paul is not saying don't care about other things. He's gonna actually talk about a lot of other things that aren't just Christ and him crucified. What he's saying is watch out for what's happening in Corinth. Watch out for just following the newest teacher, the most progressive, enlightened, whoever has the the most followers, watch out for that. That's what Paul is doing. But he's not against rhetoric. He's not against philosophy. He's not against learning. Let me give you some passages. First Corinthians in the same book, one, four through five. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Look what he thanks God for, their rhetoric and their knowledge. That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. Romans 15, 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So he's not against rhetoric. He's not against knowledge. The same is true in church history. Thomas Aquinas says this. The study of philosophy is legitimate and praiseworthy in itself. Those who use philosophical text and sacred teaching by subjugating them to faith do not mix water with wine, but turn water into wine. We take the water of Greek philosophy and we turn it into wine through the gospel. This next one from St. Augustine. It is a long quote, but it is worth reading. He's talking about rhetoric. There were some people in the early church that thought Christians shouldn't study philosophy, shouldn't study speaking, shouldn't study eloquence, and uh, Augustine writes against them and he says this. Now, the art of rhetoric being available for the enforcing of either truth or falsehood, who will dare to say that truth and the person of its defenders is to take its stand unarmed against falsehood? For example, that those who are trying to persuade men of what is false are to know how to introduce their subject so as to put their hearer into a friendly or attentive or teachable frame of mind, why the defenders of truth shall be ignorant of that art, that the former are to tell their falsehoods briefly, clearly, and plausibly, why the latter shall tell the truth in such a way that it is tedious to listen to, hard to understand, and in fine, not easy to believe it? Who is such a fool as to think this wisdom? Since then, the faculty of eloquence, there's the phrase, is available for both sides and is of very great service in the enforcing either of right or wrong, or wrong or right. Why do not good men study to engage it on the side of truth? when bad men use it to obtain the triumph of wicked and worthless causes and to further injustice and error. That was kind of long. Here's what Augustine is saying. If Christians don't study rhetoric, if Christians don't study logic, if Christians don't study philosophy, guess who will? The evil people, the lost people, the false teachers. And then we're at an unfair fight. Eloquence is morally neutral. It can be used for evil or it can be used for good. God's people should use it for good because it belongs to us. Everything true belongs to Christians, period. Wherever you find it, all truth is God's truth. One more long quote from John Calvin. 
Whenever we come upon these matters in secular writers, let that admirable light of truth shining in them teach us that the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. If we regard the Spirit of God as the sole foundation of truth, we shall neither reject the truth itself nor despise it wherever it shall appear unless we wish to dishonor the Spirit of God. Shall we say that the philosophers were blind in their fine observation and artful description of nature? No, we cannot read the writings of the ancients on these subjects without great admiration. But if the Lord has willed that we be helped in physics, dialectic, mathematics, and other like disciplines by the work and ministry of the ungodly, let us use this assistance. For if we neglect God's gift freely offered in these arts, we ought to suffer just punishment for our sloths. He's saying if all truth comes from the Spirit of God and there are truths out there in science, philosophy, mathematics, and we neglect those, we are neglecting something of the Spirit of God. That's what he is saying. So I say all of that to say, he's, Paul here is not anti-intellectual. He's not stop all that book learning and just listen to the Spirit. And just, he's not doing all that. He's not critiquing rhetoric. He's critiquing an abuse of rhetoric. He's critiquing those that are using it to exalt themselves. Whereas Christianity is really about, look at this last phrase, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. At the end of the day, the most important things for you to know about Christianity, you will not come to through unaided human reason. Through unaided human reason, you can discover there is a God and that you have sinned against him. That's about it. The most important truths about God must be revealed to you in scripture, that he is a trinity, that he has sent the second person of the trinity to uh, die for the sins of mankind, that Christ is fully God and fully man, though one person, that salvation is sola fide, by faith alone, in the gracious act of God. You cannot merit it. You cannot earn it that we will be bodily resurrected. All these things you don't get from just observing nature that has to be revealed to you by God. At the end of the day, we don't have a foolish faith, but we do have a faith that looks foolish to those who are blind, okay? That looks foolish to those who are blind. Let me say it in a way that is a little more shocking. We worship a homeless Jew who got crucified. That doesn't sound like wisdom to the lost and dying world. That sounds crazy. That sounds insane. And Paul is saying, that's what our faith is on. Our faith doesn't rest on the best eloquent speaker. You know why? Because then when a more eloquent speaker came by, they would, everyone would lose their faith. Our faith rests in facts that Jesus died, that he was resurrected, that the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, etc. It, it rests on these actual events. It doesn't rest in mankind's attempt to reach up to God. The gospel is about God's attempt to reach down to man. We don't ascend, God condescends. One more quote, and we'll end with this, by New Testament scholar Anthony Thistleton. If everything rests on human cleverness, sophistication, or achievement, the cross of Christ no longer functions as that which subverts and cuts across all human distinctions of race, class, gender, and status to make room for divine grace alone as sheer, unconditional gift. Let's pray as we get ready to partake in communion. Almighty God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this text. I pray that you would use it to convict us where are the areas where instead of just loving you, we are trying to be of Paul or we are trying to be of Apollos or we are trying to be of Cephas? Would you help us? Help us walk that line of knowing there are times to divide and sometimes that's righteous. There are other times to lay down things that aren't important for the sake of unity. I pray not only for Parkway, but I pray for just believers, Bible-believing evangelical churches who just seem to continue drifting and just don't seem to stop. Would you help them? Would you correct them? Would you love them? Would you preserve us? Would you help us see your word rightly? that we might be tossed, that we might not be tossed to and fro by all the uh, waves and wind of doctrine. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.